This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Back to You podcast. I'm James Glenday, filling in this week for David Spears and answering your questions about politics, along with Claudia Long from the Triple J's Hack Program, who is here with me in Parliament House. Hi, Claudia. Hey, James. And Simon Lauder, the breakfast presenter for ABC Southeast, who is based in beautiful Bega. Good morning, Simon. Hi, James. Great to be with you. Hi, Claudia. Hey. <laughs> this week, the Prime Minister was strutting the world stage, going to all sorts of meetings, NATO and the like, and the new parliamentarians came to Canberra for what's called a politician school. It's a couple of days where new MPs are told where the toilets are, where the office is, how to vote, things like that. And understandably, quite a bit of the focus was on the new independence. And our first question today is from Joe about this, who asks, given how well the Greens did at the election in inner Brisbane and how Labor won inner blue ribbon seats like Higgins and Benelong, is it fair to say that the Teal independence didn't so much take seats off the Liberals, but save them from Labor and the Greens. It's an interesting question, Joe. My gut says, no, that's not quite the case. But I'm going to go to Claudia first, because <laughs> we've got a lot of census data this week that shows that uh, these electorates are changing. More young people are moving in. Yeah, that's right. So I think this is a really interesting question. I'm sort of on the same page as you, James, in that I think it's an interesting idea, but I don't think the Teals are necessarily protecting these seats from the Greens and Labor. Like Kuyong and Wentworth would be examples of ones that just weren't going to flip to, mm. I guess, a left kind of Curtain. MP. Curtain, mm. that mm. kind of thing, exactly. But I think what's really worth looking at in these seats, and James, just mentioned it as well, is demographic data. And for nerds like me, this has been a very exciting week because we've had the new census data come out. It's very <laughs> exciting. And I think this is something to really keep an eye on in the lead up to and before the next election, which I know feels like it's just happened, but it'll probably come up feeling like it's just around the corner. And keeping an eye on the demographics that are voting in these seats, because so many of these areas where we've seen that swing from more conservative to Labor or even further left to the Greens, younger voters have played a part in that, right? So, you know, Joe mentioned Kuyong is a teal seat. And Higgins is one that went to Labor. Now, the median age in Kuyong, I just looked it up before we came in here, it's three years older than Higgins at 40. Higgins mm. is 37. Now, obviously, correlation doesn't equal causation. There's probably a whole lot of stuff that's gone into that data, but I'm a Melbourne girl and Higgins is a seat. <laughs> you know, a lot of my uni friends started moving there not that long ago. You've got a lot of younger people moving in there into share houses and flats, that kind of thing. Don't see that so much in Kuyong, in that mm. kind of blue ribbon Hawthorne area. Now, Again, at Hack, you know, we've done some analysis of these seats that fell to the Greens in Queensland, and that was before the election. And what it showed us is that young voters were going to play a huge part, and we actually kind of predicted in our team that they'd go to the Greens, and they did. Mm. And it's quite interesting because a quarter of those voters in the two neighbouring Queensland seats that went to the Greens, Brisbane and Griffith, are aged between 18 to 29. And so that's why I think, you know, this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on because it's such an important part of how these seats are flipping and who they're going to. Mm. It's quite fascinating, I think. Yeah, it's really interesting. And Joe, I agree with Claudia here. When you look at the seats in Brisbane that went to the Greens, they are kind of slightly different seats to the ones that the Teals took. They're contested seats, a bit more like maybe Tanya Plibersek's seat of Sydney, maybe even Anthony Albanese's seat in Sydney too. There became three-way tussles where the Teals are really targeting those ultra-safe Liberal seats. They were obviously women in seats held by men. They were campaigning on integrity, on climate change, on integrity in government as well, and all those kind of things. And I think they had a really strong point of difference and a very unpopular Prime Minister in those areas that they took advantage of. So I do think that they are a bit different 
with maybe exception of North Sydney, but it is an interesting one. To you, Simon, I wanted to ask, a lot of the census data and stuff out this week, every single person we spoke to in a regional area during the campaign, their problem was housing, not being able to get it for workers, not being able to live in it themselves, not being able to pay rent. How much of a big deal is that for you in Bega? Look, it has been a big deal in this region since before the bushfires, to be honest, particularly in a lot of those tourist towns. I'm thinking of Jindabyne in particular, where in winter you see backpackers living cheek by jowl in these share houses because they're just there was never enough housing to cater for that that spike in in visitor numbers. And then we had the bushfires, thousands of people lost their homes there. And as we know, rebuilding has been virtually impossible since then. And then the the pandemic factor as well. And it's become a, a national phenomenon now. And really, it's something that underpins so many other issues in this region. If there's someone that wants more staff, they can attract the staff, but then the staff can't find somewhere to live. So it, it's really a problem from which so many other issues stem. And as we, we saw just recently, the Yorubadala mayor stepping outside of the responsibilities of a local government uh, by his own admission with really a plea to holiday homeowners mm. to consider putting their, their homes up for long-term rent, make a bit of a personal sacrifice from the income they would get from short-term rentals, Airbnbs, or, or perhaps not visiting their own holiday home for the sake of opening it up to someone else to live in. And there are just so many unoccupied homes here. The census revealed almost a third of homes in the Yorubadala Shire. We're talking around Batemans Bay, Maruya, etc. They are unoccupied. In the Bega Valley, it's uh, not quite as bad, 16.6%, but a quarter of homes unoccupied in the snowy Monero. So, I mean, that kind of grates when really there are so many people who can't afford to live here anymore. We've got dozens of people, including families with young children, sleeping in tents. Yeah, it's horrendous. That's another really interesting thing that's come out of the census too. One million empty homes, right? Mm. And that's something that our audience at Hack, young people, are also really concerned about because we know that there is a rental crisis at the moment. We know that there is a housing crisis. And all of this data is coming out of the census and it's making it really clear just how stark that is. And I think there is almost a political opportunity in terms of actually trying to fix that when it comes to rentals as well. And not just a political opportunity, but also doing the right thing. Mm. Just back to the crossbench, we've got a couple of questions on this. One from Mark, who asks about the staffing for the Teals in particular. Is this an own goal from the ALP? Shouldn't the ALP be attempting to keep the crossbench on side, if only to show they're going to be different? He also adds, it's curious how staffing is arranged. Is everyone meant to have the same number of staff as ministers have a higher staff allocation? Does this give the government an advantage? I can very quickly summarise this before throwing to you. Uh, Mark, yes, ministers do have an advantage, a massive one. That's why they want to be in government. Is everyone meant to have the same number of staff? No, it's worked out as a percentage of a variety of different things. The government's going to have about four, over 400 staff. The opposition's going to have about 100. And backbenchers, as standard, get four electoral officers. The Teals have been offered one more advisor, that advisor role is lucrative because it's relatively well paid and uh, their travel is covered. And so they were hopeful of getting four, which is what Scott Morrison offered them. And at the moment, they've got one and they're trying to get a couple more if possible. I'm not sure they're going to be that 
<laughs> lucky to get it. And uh, does the government need to keep the crossbench on side? Not in the lower house because it has a majority. In the Senate, yes, it will need a couple of crossbenchers to pass legislation that the opposition opposes. Claudia, was mm. this the right move? I don't see how they could have shot themselves in the foot more comprehensively this early on. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I think talking to crossbenchers and some of their staff, there does seem to now be a bit of animosity, I think, where there wasn't necessarily before. I think this does jar a little bit with some of what we've been hearing from Anthony Albanese. We've been hearing him talk about doing politics differently Mm. and more collaboratively. And he's really been um, making a big point of that as a big point of difference between him and Scott Morrison. And I think some of the crossbenchers and their staff, who obviously have a stake in this because they'll potentially be affected by it, don't see this as politics being done differently. They see it as very much more of the same. Now, there Mm. is also an interesting other element to this though, right, which is that during the Gillard years on the crossbench, they had one staff member Mm -hmm. and that went up and up through the coalition government years who, as they arguably had more of an incentive to want to keep the crossbench on side because they had yeah, such slim majorities. They needed them. They needed them, exactly. They were essential. And just like James mentioned too, in the lower house at the moment, if they've got a majority, this isn't going to be such a problem. Where it might cause them a headache is in the Senate. And so I think it'll be interesting to see that play out. But I don't think, and this is just a hunch, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be a huge problem for the public. I think it's hard Mm. to feel sorry for politicians, for a lot of people. You know, these are very well-paid jobs. They come with a lot of perks. And I think in the community, when we've got issues like housing prices going up, electricity prices going up, the price of food and petrol is just skyrocketing. It's going to be hard to get people to care about that. Simon, has anyone called into your show and said, why do the Teals not have more staff? <laughs> not Fix at this all. right now. <laughs> Look, I'm with Claudia on that. I mean, it might uh, cause some headaches in terms of the government's management of this parliament and that might uh, make for a bad look uh, here and there. But in terms of public perceptions, I don't think I was the only one to whom it was a revelation that crossbenchers used to get four advisors in addition to electorate staff. It was a revelation to the PM as well, apparently. He said, what, they had four? (laughs) You know, some ministers had two, shadow ministers rather had two. So, mm. And the government saying that this is all about reducing spending during tough times, I think most people would see how that's reasonable, but uh, whether they do regret it in terms of how they have to deal with those relationships in the Senate, I guess we'll wait and see. Yeah. See, I don't think they should have four staff. I know that that's... I see Hot takes. I, <laughs> it's a real hot take because <laughs> I, I see that probably politicians do need more staff. It's busy. There's been all these reports that are found overwork is a problem. It contributes to the negative culture in Canberra, all those kind of things. But on the other hand, I'm a bit torn on it because for a long time, public servants, particularly senior ex-public servants, have said things like political staff are inexperienced, they don't know what they're talking about, and they wield too much power. And so I I, I sort of don't mind if that's diluted Mm. a little bit in all of it. So, And to be honest, four was a fix from a prime minister under enormous pressure trying to save his own agenda and kind of keep the previous government on the rails. I don't know that that's really the way the government should work. It is a tricky one, isn't it, in that regard? Because I think too, like you just mentioned, some of the reports we've had into the culture in this place, and I think being a staffer, even though you might have all those perks and that high pay, it is an incredibly difficult job. And there is an argument, I think, that more staffers potentially creates, you know, a bit more safety. You have safety in numbers Mm. because obviously staffers, um, you may have heard of the MOPS Act, which is the Members of Parliament Act, which at the moment as it stands, I believe, gives 
employees a lot more power over staff and potentially leaves mm. them a bit more vulnerable. And like you said, overwork is mm. something that is mentioned in the Jenkins review as a real problem. It means people are staying in the building later. They are working from dusk till dawn. They're worn out. They're burnt out mm. effectively. And I think it's an interesting one that this government is going to have to balance between perhaps winding back the staffing a little bit to make it a bit mm. more reasonable, but also then doing what they said they'd do and act in line with the Jenkins <laughs> this, review. This is a power play, though, as well. Mm. I mean, I think apparently the PM is driving this and just thinks that this is absolutely the right thing to do. And he is a parliamentary tactician and he just thinks, no, nah, this is how it was. This is how it should be. Well, it sends a message, doesn't it? I mean, there were a couple of weeks there when the crossbenchers and the Greens possibly could have had the balance of power in the lower house. And all of a sudden, that's not the case. Labor gets 77 seats. What message does this send? Maybe they're just saying, look, we're in charge. Yeah, it's that's definitely true. Uh, we've got a question from Mel, which is kind of along these similar lines. He says, he asks, it's been common practice for the opposition to give the government a pair if the latter had an MP missing from the government business or, or for personal reasons. Are the crossbench obliged to give a pair too? Now, all these kind of pairing arrangements are sort of like an agreement that the parties do. They work it out so that parliament can function and then the government just doesn't suspend things so it can have people away. I don't think that the crossbench will be obliged to give a pair because the major parties will just work this out via convention and there's not really much in it for the opposition to betray convention because if they do, then they're going to get it back a lot. Uh, basically, it means that people can leave parliament and be away at speeches, events, the foreign minister can be overseas. Mat leave. Mat leave, all these kind of things, sick leave and the numbers, the advantage that the government has doesn't actually change. So crossbenchers, I think, Mel, can do what they'd like. Let's get on to some policy questions. Mark has probably summarised the first sitting week of Parliament for us here. What is the likelihood that the Greens will support the 43% target that the ALP went to the election with? My understanding is that Labor's being squeezed from the left by the Greens, who want a higher target, and you know probably add the teals into that too, and from the right by the Coalition, who want a lower target. In my mind, it is looking that a legislated solution is unlikely. Interesting question mark. I think we're going to be debating this <laughs> a, a lot. The government doesn't think or it doesn't actually need to legislate its 43% target, but it wants to. Now, yes, you could look at it as the government being squeezed or you could look at this being something the government really wants to do, but also as a bit of a wedge because it puts the focus on the Greens. Are they going to back it? Are they not? And it puts the focus on the coalition, particularly the so-called moderates or modern liberals who say they stand up for climate change and want higher targets. What do you reckon is going to happen, Claudia? It's going to be tricky for them too because their faction has been almost decimated at this election, hasn't yeah. it? I think in the Greens party room, they would probably have on their mind casting back a little bit a few years mm. what happened when we had the CPRS. Yeah. And the Greens effectively played a pretty big role in seeing a carbon pollution reduction scheme at that time. Essentially what happened is I think the Greens really damaged a lot of their brand in doing that because what we ended up with was in another decade of warring over climate mm -hmm. policy instead of having something and then building on it. Now, they might have in mind the lessons that they learned from that, but they've also got to balance that, I think, with this brand that they've built to win over voters, which is stronger action on climate and not mm -hmm. compromising on that, given the immediate and huge scale of this crisis that we're facing. Yeah, I think, Mark, my guess would be is that the Greens are going to make a lot of noise about this, but eventually 
eventually they're going to say 43% is a flaw and we will pass it and they'll pass it with uh, David Pocock. And I wouldn't rule out quite a few Liberal senators saying, we're going to do this too. Sorry, I know Peter Dutton doesn't want to pass, but you know what? I've just seen my colleagues in the lower house lose their jobs for not speaking out. I'm going to be pretty noisy about this. Is this something that you get questions about, Simon? Because, you know, climate targets and particularly your area, which was so badly hit by the bushfires, you know, climate change has become an increasingly big issue. Yeah, absolutely. And up until the bushfires, you'd still get the occasional text message into the program from someone who was basically a climate change denier. You don't see that anymore. That was a realisation that this is here, it's real, it's affecting our daily lives and we need to do something about it. The impression I get is that there's no way the Greens would certainly not willingly support the 43% target candidates I spoke to on the election trail well, basically saying that condemns us to a future full of more natural disasters. I did find it curious that Labor went with 43% rather than the 45% that the UN said was necessary to, to limit climate change to one and a half degrees of warming, but perhaps it's one that Labor thinks it will naturally exceed, but 43% might be more acceptable to coalition voters who they perhaps also want within their tent. See, this is a field opinion, but there's a lot of people <laughs> in the background here who are sick of debates about targets because targets aren't how we get there. Like that's not, you know, it, it do, it's not actually what target we set, although that's important for something to aim at. It's it's what are the things we do to reduce emissions or offset emissions that actually get us close to this sort of thing. So I think that'll be a bit part of the debate too. But it's also the message it sends globally, isn't it? I mean, if we're not committing to what the UN says is necessary, why should other nations, if we consider our, ourselves a leader in, in other areas, why not this one? Mm. I think this is another area too where it's going to be interesting to keep watching those changing demographics in electorates that we mentioned before as well because talking to young Greens, young Labor, young Libs, they have hardly anything in common but what most people under 30 seem to have in common is that they want ambitious climate targets. That's a politically popular thing among that those three groups, I think, in based on who I've spoken to and obviously that's anecdotal. But I think it would be interesting to see if Labor is actually going to be more ambitious on this potentially going throughout this term, given that the electorate has said yes to climate change action, I think. Mm, yeah, no, it'll be an interesting one. We've got a question from Lyndall about childcare. She says, it seems to me that suggesting that childcare be completely free is a misnomer because things have to be paid for by taxpayers. But couldn't job sharing be promoted with nudging in that direction with things like incentives and legislation to allow this to occur more easily? On the first part of that, yes, Upfront, there is a cost to taxpayers uh, by funding childcare, but all sorts of economists have looked at this and said that if we want to grow our economy, if we want to have more women earning more and uh, competing more for jobs and having higher skills and making the economy more efficient and therefore boosting the tax take overall, this is an investment longer term that we can actually, you know, five, ten years down the track, actually look back and go, wow, our tax take is a lot higher, our economy is more efficient and our budget's in a better position as a result of this money that we spent a while back. Claudia, good policy, free childcare. I, th I think this is the definition of you have to spend money to make money mm. for the exact reasons that you just outlined. You know, this is something that for 
exactly as you just said, will feed back into the economy and also for Labor, I think, as a smart move because, you know, we saw a lot of professional female voters flocking to the teals Mm -hmm. and their equivalents, I suppose. And so I think Labor would be thinking about that and potentially thinking, well, how can we win these voters back? or win them over for the first time. And this could potentially be a good way to do that because I think this free childcare thing has two sides. You have the economic benefit side and then you also have the side which is gender equity and allowing women to get back in the workforce because that is what's fair. And I think that, yes, you have huge economic benefit and then you also have the issue around the fact that not just women have children, men have them too. (laughs) Um, And yet men obviously have a much easier path back into the workforce. And I've heard a number of people in Labor kind of touting this as like, you know, Labor did Medicare and now we're going to bring you universal childcare. And so obviously they're trying to kind of build on that brand, I guess you could call it, or their identity as a party by kind of making this the 21st century version of that as well. Simon, this is kind of one of those issues that no one thinks about until they have a family and then it's all they think about. <laughs> You're in this space at the moment. That's right. My children spent day at home during the teacher's strike. Nothing too bad happened. But when it comes to childcare, I reckon it's kind of in the same category as the housing conundrum. In terms of how the major parties talked about it during the election campaign, there was a lot of talk about how to make it more affordable, how you pay for it, but not how we get more of it. Addressing this supply issue, I've got a colleague who has had to drop back to part-time because there's no family daycare where he lives. There's no spaces in the local preschools. In one local government area here in southeast New South Wales, there are 400 children under five years who are on a waiting list for childcare. And that might not sound like a lot compared to a city waiting list, but that amounts to about a year waiting So it just means parents are unable to return to work. And of course, that affects the whole economy. So are we going to see some solutions in terms of more places, more childcare centres? I think people are just waiting for supply solutions as they are with housing too. Mm. Yeah. And Lyndall, just to be super clear, Labor's not promising totally free childcare for everyone. It says that uh, about 96% of families are going to be better off. Uh, 1.26 million families. Basically, it's uh, proposing a range of measures, things like raising subsidy, lifting maximum subsidies in terms of your wage and things like that as well. So more people will be able to access and benefit from the rebates that come from it. Really interesting question as well today from Vivian, who wants to talk about tax cuts. She's curious to know why the government is so set on continuing with particularly the Stage 3 tax cuts, which were actually introduced and proposed by Scott Morrison when he was the treasurer, if you remember back that far. Vivian asks, I think the average voter would be keen to see people on higher income contribute more, especially with the massive budget deficit and rising interest rates to deal with. Wouldn't most of the independents be keen too? Interesting one, Vivian. I don't think the independents are going to be that keen to raise taxes on high income earners. And I am very confident that Labor is going to proceed with these cuts because it promised it would. They are enormously expensive. A lot of economists say they're unfair as well because people on higher incomes are going to benefit substantially more than people on average incomes. But I think what might be a possibility to deal with the budget deficit over, if not the next three years, the three years after that. I reckon through this term, Labor might try to lay the groundwork for some broader tax reform. It hasn't said it's going to increase taxes 
in this term. It promised not to, but I reckon it might lay the groundwork for a second term where it tries to do those kind of things. Because you've got to remember that the independents represent people in relatively well-off areas. And some of the ideas that independents have been talking about are not tax on incomes, but tax on wealth. Because you might earn $150,000 or $200,000 a year, but you might not actually be, you're going to be relatively doing all right, but you're not going to be- Pretty good, I would say. You're not going to be necessarily super, super rich. And this is this point that people like Allegra Spender raised. Yeah. And that's so true too about the independents, because I think- you know, they got a lot of attention during the election, but really a lot of them are socially progressive and economically conservative, much Mm. like the moderate wing of the Mm. Liberal Party. And just as James said too, we're talking about people who represent some of the wealthiest electorates in the country. You know, your Wentworths, your Kuyongs, that kind of, you know, places with very established wealth, a lot of high income earners there as well. I do see where Vivian's coming from on this. It does feel like a bit of a, a contradiction in terms of having these income tax cuts for people who earn more money and then saying, we have to repair the budget and making cuts elsewhere. But I agree with James in that I think they will try and use this as a pathway to then start doing reform in the next term Mm. instead of going back on their promises that they made about this term of government. And it does sort of seem at odds with, you know, Anthony Albanese spoke a lot about how the lowest income earners deserve to pay rise and deserve to have life easier and things with the cost of living and all Mm. the rest of it. But then at the same time, they agreed to these tax cuts. It's the real elephant in the room, isn't it? I mean, we're looking at, what, $15.7 billion, the cost of these stage three income tax cuts just for the first year. And I I wonder if it's another one of those that Labor decided not to touch as a result of the 2019 uh, scare campaigns around uh, Labor's plan to restrict negative gearing. They ditched that this time. And they've decided to to go with the stage three tax cuts as well. Was it, uh, you know, are they too sensitive? To, were they too sensitive to these uh, scare campaigns and scared of prosecuting their own arguments? I don't know. Is that a few opinion? I think that's a good point, you know, because like they kind of ditched a lot of stuff in, in a bid for their small target strategy. And now they're paying the price for that in a lot of ways, because now they're actually having to do these things now that they're in government. You know, things that they kind of kept because they didn't want to rock the boat are now potentially going to give them a bit of an economic headache. When you say tax reform, James, I'm thinking GST. What do you reckon? Yep, I, I think so. I mean, I don't know where they'll end up. I don't know whether there'll be another review. Labor did the Henry tax review and then implemented almost none of it. But, you know, I, I think that, for example, there's been a lot of discussion about fuel prices. People don't think about this, but in normal times when you're paying 44 cents in the litre, you drive Sydney to Canberra, you're paying 10, 11 bucks a bit more probably just in tax. Whereas maybe there should be a system of road user charges to account for electric cars, those kind of things. That reform's going to have to happen at some point. Maybe Labor will start talking about that. Maybe they'll talk about broadening the base of the GST. Maybe they'll talk about increasing it slightly and then funneling some of the money that they raise back to lower income families, which is, you know, one idea. Tax raising taxes is a tricky conversation. But just on your question, Vivian, as well, the Parliamentary Budget Office reckons that it's going to cost over the scale of the budget around a one hundred and eighty-four billion dollars and about $137 billion of that is going to benefit Australians who earn $120,000 a year or more. So if you're a politician on a base salary of more than 200 grand, 211,000, you're going to get a tax cut of about nine grand. And a nurse who earns 72,000 is going to get closer to $681. Those calculations are according to the Australia Institute. So yeah, it's a big, big difference. 
While we're talking about the economy, we've got a question from Chris who wants to talk about inflation and wages growth and energy prices and how they are interrelated and what the government could do to maybe constrain energy prices. This has sort of dropped off a little bit in the past week or so, but it's going to be a hard winter for a lot of people because gas prices are still high, electricity prices are still high. And the government has been slowish to act on this, Claudia. It's sort of saying we're going to not rush into it, but we're going to rebuild the grid and do these kind of things over time. Yeah, and I think, you know, that makes sense from a longer-term way of thinking, but there's people who are in their houses who are who are making it through this very, very cold winter right now. October budget, time Octo- for yes, <laughs> cost of living package. Springtime. Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, you know, we know too, we hear from people at Hack who are young, who can't afford to turn the heater on. That gets even worse if you're living with a disability or you are elderly and that can have a real impact on your health as well. We've been hearing from people who are really, really struggling. And I think October is great, springtime is great, but it would be really good to hear about this again before then because people are really struggling Mm. and this is, like you said, it's a hard winter. And it's a hard one too because the government doesn't want to put too much money into the economy through handouts, things like that, if, you know, not that people will see them as handouts, but, but because then they're worried that that could drive up inflation further. Simon, down where you are, how is inflation biting in a place like Bega? Uh, yes, well, it's the talk of the town everywhere. I mean, food prices and with this varroa mite and the bees being in trouble, that's that's only going to escalate, isn't it? And wait till the petrol price goes up 20 cents. Exactly. Mm. When's that? September. That's going to be a shock to, to everyone. And as you say, electricity, heating, it's going to be a bitter winter for a lot of people who are trying to save money. As you're saying, James, I don't know how, what the government can do. They can hardly just pump more money into a household economy uh, to give people more money to pay for their bills without uh, putting more pressure on inflation. And we saw recently when the government was urging us to turn the lights down low, let's talk about electricity, uh, a lot of those private generators um, just choosing not to enter the market because they weren't making profits. So they don't seem to be a lot of levers available to the government at this point. So there's a lot going on (laughs) for this new government. I spoke to a minister the other day and I won't use the word because it's probably not appropriate for broadcast, that he described <laughs> the type of sandwich that they in, had inherited. And there's a lot of things, cost of living, you know, energy, climate change action, a lot of those sort of things, the state of the budget, you know, more than a trillion dollars in debt and no, no surpluses in sight. Do you think, Simon, that people are going to give Labor benefit of the doubt? Like, is it a year, two years? Are they going to say, well, you know, it's going to take a while to to correct these problems? Or do you think they're going to start to get frustrated when they sort of see their bills and people who aren't as, you know, following the day-to-day hurly-burly in Canberra? It's always those hip pocket issues that seem to be the first to come home to roost, isn't it? And I think that is going to be hard for the government to navigate that domestically. And people do have a lot to to grumble about at the moment. And it's only going to get worse. How many of these diabolical issues can they really deal with in a substantial way in one term? I imagine, though, after nearly a decade in office uh, for the coalition, people were looking for change and that they are going to perhaps give them a bit of leeway on that front. It's going to be interesting to see what other issues this government has to face 
not mentioning any of the international issues at the moment as well. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit going on there as well. Claudia, what do you reckon? I reckon people might give them better leeway of maybe a year. You know, we are talking about a new government, but mm. I think what Labor will need to do to make sure that that goodwill is maintained past that year is not to have to have fixed everything. I don't think everyone expects them to do that, but to have some signs that things are getting better because they have inherited the beep sandwich. Um, and, you know, I think the awkward thing about that for them, putting it mildly, is that all of these issues are now reaching a crisis point, right? And so we had rising electricity prices under the coalition, but it's now getting to a point where people will not be able to actually pay their bills in many cases. And, you know, same with food, same with fuel, all of this stuff that is just all going up at the same time now, thanks to inflation. But what I think Labor, yeah, needs to do is within this year, have signs that things are getting better, like reasons for people to feel like, okay, there is hope, you know, things are going to get better. I have a concrete example of the government actually changing things to improve my life, something like that. Because otherwise, if they can't have any signs that things are getting better, I think that's when people will Mm. understandably start to turn on them. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, some kind of sign that there are some solutions in the works, at least some systemic long-term solutions. Interesting. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Claudia. Thanks for having me. And uh, you too, Simon, down in Bega. I'll try not to get too jealous about where you get to live and work. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. I might go skiing this weekend. Oh, oh stop it. Nice. The coast and then the snow. We're going to be back next week. And if you have a question you'd like answered, uh, please send us an email to backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. And you, of course, can catch up with all our episodes right now on the ABC Listen app. I'm James Glenday and until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.